Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to The Stages Podcast. I am thrilled to welcome director Simon Phillips to the program today. He's been at the helm of numerous shows that have engaged, inspired and informed audiences nationally and globally. Whether it be the classic fare of Shakespeare, the punch of a contemporary Australian play, or the flamboyance of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Simon has the masterful ability to mine a text and deliver a nuanced production that never fails to make its mark. He has steered the State Theatre Company of South Australia and the Melbourne Theatre Company as an artistic director of incredible vision and connection to his audience, always programming an array of experiences and overseeing tremendous growth and invention. As a freelance director, his energy and passion continues to be a driving force, as is his immense charm and understanding of the construction of great theatre. Simon Phillips is about to open a brand new production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera. He is doing so for Opera Australia's Hander Opera on Sydney Harbour. His canvas is the iconic harbour, but he brings to it an appreciation of the celebrated story via his work on the Phantom sequel, Love Never Dies. A perfect vantage point to breathe new life into the cherished narrative of the mysterious Phantom and his muse, Christine Daae. A chat with Simon is inspiring. His energy is palpable and his knowledge extensive. You'll see what I mean. Here's my chat with the adroit Simon Phillips. Simon Phillips, what a delight to uh, have this opportunity to uh, to talk theatre with you. Um, you've been on my wish list since day one, so um, so welcome to oh, stage. Yes. I bet you say that to everyone, Peter. Of course, I, I do actually. <laughs> <laughs> but but no 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 no, you're um you're a lovely big fish to have uh, frying in my pan for the next hour. So um, so welcome. Now, Simon, you've got uh, two terrific productions arriving on Sydney stages in the in the first part of the year. Of course, uh, the Phantom of the Opera on glorious Sydney Harbour, and um, the stage adaptation of of Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, which has had seasons around Australia and and the UK and Toronto. It's great that Sydney is finally getting to see the show. Yes, that's my view. I'm really, I'm really pleased we've finally found a way of getting it into Sydney, albeit at this rather precarious time for theatre in in general. It's uh, it's um, it's really gr- great opportunity. I'm sure Sydney's going to love it if they're brave enough to go to the theatre. Now, the show originated at the Melbourne Theatre Company. Uh, is that correct? 
Yeah, yeah, it was a co-production between the Melbourne Theatre Company and um, uh, Andrew Kay and Liza McLean's production company. Uh, so it was Andrew and uh, Liza who first came to us to talk about doing doing it. Um, and then we partnered up with the MTC to produce it in the first instance, yeah. yeah. Now, Hitchcock famously made cameos in all of his films. Will Will Mr Phillips be seen in, uh, in the stage adaptation? <laughs> I am actually seen in the stage adaptation, actually. Oh, that's in wonderful. A way, in, a way that, in a way that barely anyone ever notices, but in a, we did a little joke and, and I'm there at one stage, yes. Yeah, the, the Bernard Herman score is such a, a huge character in the film. Have you been able to accommodate that on stage? Yes, we really um, we really wanted to include some of it because it feels kind of, as you say, it's so kind of interconnected to the iconography of that of that um, film. Um, and we for, for, for financial reasons, obviously we had to be circumspect about how much of it we use because of the royalties you pay on it, but actually we, the um, the composer for the production, Ian McDonald, has done a kind of brilliant job of, in in vital moments, we use we use legitimate Herman, and then a lot of the rest of the time we we're using, uh, you know, pseudo Herman uh, as as penned by Ian, so it's pretty seamless. But in the in the major sequences, we've we've. We've kept. We, we've tried to kind of save up Herman for where it really, really matters, and uh, and he really he he's just it's just a it's just a wonderful score. That score is fantastic. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Now, of course, the the film darts all over the place in hotels and bars, Park Avenue, the UN headquarters, Mount Rushmore on a train. <laughs> I imagine the play goes along at quite the clappers. I thought that was probably one of the really important things that we had to capture in doing a stage. I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm kind of, um, in, I've, I've done a few of them, I guess, but I'm always um, very circumspect about adapting a film for the stage and whether it legitimately can belong on the stage and in what spirit it belongs on the stage. Uh, and the interesting thing about that film is there are quite significant set pieces which are very theatrical. Like you do hang around in rooms quite a bit in that in that um, piece um but i wanted to capture that sense of of the thriller and the chase you know it's a chase movie in many ways so the cast rush around a hell of a lot of time it's 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 some um, part show part weight loss program to be <laughs> in north by northwest <laughs> yeah, well, yeah it's great deal of furniture moving <laughs> the the adaptation from film to stage audiences go along and and they expect to see certain things that they love from the film you know if i think of north by northwest i'm hoping that the crop duster scene makes an appearance it has to make an appearance how yes, do you accommodate well, I, that yes you can't there is that's exactly it peter i think you know there's things where you go well if you can't do that you, why are you doing North by Northwest? Like, what's mm. the point? That's that's mm. half of what the film is about. And in fact, when um, Liza and Andrew approached me about it, I knew that before we even said yes, we'd do it. I needed to have an idea in my head as to how to pull off those those major sequences, the seemingly impossible theatrical sequences, the crop duster, the climb across Mount Rushmore at the end. I needed to have a way of doing those. So once I'd worked that out, we went, yes, I think I think we can now 
kind of tell the story based around these solutions. I read yeah. that uh, Hitchcock originally considered calling the film The Man in Lincoln's Nose. Have you heard that? <laughs> right. That is true. <laughs> it's funny, actually, all the stories about about that film, it's, it feels like Hitchcock just had this, you know, he had this idea. It's like Ernest Lehman had to, he just had to write a film to make sure that these particular things happened in the film. It wasn't really like Hitchcock had any idea about what he wanted the film to be about, as long as there was the chase across Mount Rushmore. You know, that, that, was, the, that was the inspirational image he had for, for the film existing at all. And yet, you know, brilliant, brilliant solutions and, uh, and you know, such an iconic film. Yeah, there's such powerful moments in the film. Are you able to give away any any clues? No, no uh, spoilers about how you well, achieve I mean, the Mount Rushmore. It's like I ended up feeling that uh, look, one of the things that I would generally avoid in putting a film on stage is using too much film because if you need to do that, then by definition you've kind of conceded that it isn't a piece of theatre. It's a it, it's a film, um, but I came up with this idea of kind of the audience watching the actors create certain scenic moments through film, through miniature models. So I guess I'll leave there, but I, I kind of love it the way it's developed in the show. It's extremely, it's, it's low tech meets high tech. So it's extremely tricky to pull off but the the actors all, all the filmic footage that you see in the in the show the back the back wall spends quite a lot of the production as a large projection screen um but every piece of footage that you see there is made live nightly by the actors manipulating small models so it's really fun to do and and good. Sometimes it takes audiences quite a little while to work that out, but usually by the time it gets to the crop duster, they've they've clicked. <laughs> Brilliant, <laughs> now, Simon. Simon, you're, you're prolific. I mean, at the end of last year, you finished as you like it at uh, Melbourne Theatre Company, and uh, you've got North by Northwest, uh, Phantom of the Opera through uh, the end of March and and April in Sydney. Do you ever get tired? <laughs> well, I've had a damn good rest for two years. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so right now, uh, no. Um, look, it's one of those things, Peter. You go, you, you know, the work generates energy. Good work, you know, fun work generates energy as much. So as much as you put in, you tend to get back. I, 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 you only like fee, I only experience real kind of exhaustion when when the getting the product on has been an unrewarding or um, or sapping experience for one for whatever accident that might happen. You know, if you if you're putting a huge amount of energy in and it's just not manifesting, it's kind of disappearing into some kind of vortex then you get tired but most of the time you know i feel like the work energizes you and gives you energy as much as you expend it are you mindful of diet or do you exercise regularly you go to the gym or anything like that to make sure I thought, that the, I, thought, uh... I thought for a moment you were saying <laughs> are you mindful of dying which 
I guess I am. <laughs> you have to be at the moment, yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm terribly, I'm very, very, very bad at exercise. I, I always, yes, no. The short answer is I'm, I'm a, a model of not taking care of my own body. That's <laughs> yeah. can, can you give me I'm three adjectives? I went to a gym once and I thought, no, I'll never do that again. Then I was tired. <laughs> I was exhausted. <laughs> of course, of course. Now, now, Simon, do you reckon you could give me uh, three adjectives which you think uh, best describe yourself? Oh, crafty. Um, C- crafty, is that one? <laughs> no, that's not one of them. I'm calling you crafty. You know, you're springing some kind of psychological exercise onto me. Um, oh, that's horrible, Peter. Um, what describes me? Um, I know a lot of people call you charming. Yes, but I can't say that, can I? No, you can't. <laughs> that's the definition of being charming. <laughs> I go, oh, well, yes, extraordinarily handsome, hugely <laughs> talented, and unbelievably good natured. There you go. <laughs> I'll go with that. Um, yeah. So tell me, what, what do you think makes a good director? Um, empathy, really, I think. I, look, look, there, there is, there's this, you know, vision thing, which you have to, you don't actually have to be a visionary to be a good director, I don't think. Some directors are in a kind of um, impresarios, as they say, you know, like, or they're, they're um, auteurs. Um, uh, uh, others, you know, have, have high um, degrees of, of kind of visual imagination for their shows. But really, in the end, it most of the time comes back, I think, to kind of getting actors to do their best work. And your and and you know as much as possible. There's obviously a thousand caveats over these generalizations, but as much as possible, you know, the theatre really is about making a an a, an event occur in a space where the audience and the actors are having an experience that's an exchange of energy and an exchange of ideas and exchange emotional exchange that that does go two ways and i think that as a director what you're really trying to do is find um find the way of getting the actors to communicate as vividly and honestly as as is appropriate to the individual project you know with the audience in that way so i always want and i mean there's obviously directors who don't believe this but i always want the actors to have a good time rehearsing i can't see any point in uh in doing what we do if you're not essentially enjoying it while you do it you certainly don't make up make enough money for it to be worth it being unenjoyable and I also think that, you know, you're asking, you want the audience to feel like the actors are doing something that they love. So it's awful if they're not loving it because they can't communicate that. And the audience 
love feeling that the actors are having a good time. I get that an awful lot. You know, what we loved was that the actors seemed to be enjoying themselves so much. They might have been doing a great performance of enjoying themselves, but that means something to an audience. So ideally, you do want the actors to be enjoying themselves. Do you think it helps to have been an actor? Because I know that uh, back in New Zealand at Toi you studied acting. I did. I actually, well, I actually went to Toi as a director and trainer. They didn't have a director's course, but I was right. taken into Toi to work alongside the director. But part of that basically was they didn't have a director's course. Quite a lot of that um, exercise was doing what the, what the acting students was, were doing. And I do think it, it helps. I think that I was talking to um, someone about this just very, very recently, actually, that for a director to know how it feels like to be directed is quite a useful thing. But mm. the time we should probably do it is probably when we are in our mid 40s. You know, directors should be asked to be directed. You know, they should they should put on a play and be asked to be directed by by younger directors or whatever, just to remind yourself of what it is to be going through the process of acting. Yeah, what ma what makes sense to you as an actor when you're when you're trying to perform? Of course, all many actors have not all actors are the same, and that's part of being a director you have to work out what particular language a, a particular actor responds to or or understands. You know what what makes sense hmm. uh, for different actors. But I do I do think um, I don't think you have to have been an actor to become a director by any means because. I know many, you know, superb directors who've never, who, who would, you know, would die, they'd kill them to do any acting, and yet they yeah, are wonderful yeah. directors. But I, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It's kind of to to know how it feels to be an actor is useful. Yeah, it just gives you another perspective. Uh, your rehearsal yeah. room, what, what's your rehearsal room like? How, how do you like to run rehearsals? Well... As playfully as possible, Peter. I guess I, I I prefer that. I mean, it's hard. Like it, it varies depending on the size of cast. Uh, if you're wrangling a very big cast, then then rehearsal can get a little bit more military by its very nature. Uh, but in general, I think it's a sandpit for a lot of time. What, what I kind of generally believe is that I need to have in the back of my mind consistently the show that I know that it needs to be, but hopefully, you know, leave the air free enough for for the everyone in the room to kind of make a contribution to that and, and have better ideas and present alternatives and and feel as free as possible to express themselves and to come up with great material. Uh, and just I uh, try and keep that as free for quite a lot of the rehearsal period as I can before we start kind of really wrangling the show into something that is, you know, that, that will be everything that it needs to be. An actor who has been in one of your rehearsal rooms told me that one of their favourite images was was you, shoes off, sitting down on the floor and just glued to the to the action like a like a 11-year-old a, a, a with their, their mouth wide open just at the, the yes, of the magic happening before <laughs> I can't stop myself kind of being in there with the, what the actors are trying to achieve. And I get a great deal of um, derision from actors for the, my, my, uh, my tendency to pull faces on their behalf 
while while they're working, but I can't stop it. I, I haven't never even when I think I'm not doing it, I'm doing it apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up in New Zealand, can, can you recall an experience of theatre where you went, "Wow, that's that's what I want to do. That's something that hooked you." I absolutely well, I completely have like seared memory of shows I saw when I was five and six. One was an amateur production in in a local hall of um, of Sleeping Beauty, <clears throat> and um, I remember you know the fairy flying in on basically a swing, like on that came on rails, and thinking that was a little bit underwhelming as a flying experience. And I can remember sitting in what must have been the circle watching a production, stage production of Oliver when I was very young. I might have been eight by then. And just not really remembering the content, but that incredible thing of the act of theatre being seared into my consciousness and how vivid and exciting it seemed just to be in a theatre and the lights going down and the lights coming up and how incredibly thrilling that experience was for me. You know, my brother had was taken to the same things as I was when we were young and he's an electronic engineer. So clearly <laughs> it didn't have the same effect on him. But yeah, I remember that. I remember that very vividly, but it was a long time before I realized that you could actually do that was really virtually at secondary school before I realized that you, that, that was po it was possible for that to be a profession. You know, I didn't really, add, I had other professions planned and then I suddenly realized that people actually could earn money and, and, and by, by doing that thing, by being in the theater, yeah. What were, what were the other professions you were considering? Um, I think mainly I wanted to be a vet. Well, yeah. Yeah. You really... had pet, pets as a child? Yes, and very, yeah, yeah, pets and, you know, a lot of stray animals that the pets caught and we, you know, put into a little, you know, rescued mice and rescued birds and all that kind of thing. I just like into them, love them, yeah. However. What, what was Simon like as a boy? Was was he a bossy kid? Was he uh, a drama nerd? Was he a, a sporty? I was, very, I was definitely, I was probably, I don't know if I was bossy. I could be bossy. I was a drama, absolutely a drama nerd. And I directed, I did, you know, I directed my first play when I was nine, which was just a school thing where I decided to do it. And I kept doing that at school. I was, I was pretty one-tracked and obsessed about the theatre in spite of, as I say, not knowing that it was a viable profession. And um, yes, ridiculous, ridiculous th theatre nerd in my teens, hopeless, pathetic, pathetic. Yeah. I mean, like people always say, so what music did you listen to? I said, I would go to the library, I would get recordings of Shakespeare produced on LPs mm. and take them home and listen to them you know, <laughs> in my in my bedroom. Pathetic, completely pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> well, so as opposed to, you know, listening to sensible things like David Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> What was your favourite subject at school? English, yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. That opportunity to uh, consume all that literature. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, loved it. And, um, and you know, there wasn't... I'm always astonished now when you hear what people are studying at school because, of course, 
there's no there's no th such thing as actually studying drama that that really wasn't a thing it was much more straight down the line when i was a kid in new zealand yeah well the co-curricular experiences at, at secondary school um uh, putting on the school play every year so we you were more more um uh, directing those rather than performing in them bit of both but i did start right. directing them yeah yeah i i did i just think like in new zealand where you do school certificate when you're about 15 and then you then you go back for two years and you do your university entrance and once I did my school said I was starting to get this notion of running away to join the circus. And I remember a teacher saying to me, like, you really shouldn't do that. You should complete your education. Why don't you stay at school and direct the school play each year? No, it was very nice of them and very thoughtful at the time. Mm. But it worked. So I stayed on and did all that. And, you know, all that advice that I've had been so good. Like my, but that mainly came from not believing that the theatre was a very good profession, actually, because my parents were the same. They said, look, you're, you're going to tell you what you're going to actually be. You're really going to be a teacher. You know, it's a really good job and you should go to university and get your BA, you know, just so that you've got that thing. And I did do that not really ever thinking I was going to be a teacher, but I did it just because I didn't have the um, sense of rebellion to do anything else. And um, I'm so grateful that I did. I, I just loved it. I, I just loved university. Yeah, I loved everything about it. Yeah. It, that's a common theme with, with everybody I talk to. Um, parents who naturally are cautious about the uh, the life ahead for their for their children and and always <laughs> encourage them away from the arts for a while just to get something to fall back on. Yeah, that's right. It's the fall back <laughs> on things. That's the phrase, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how did you hear about Toy Fakari? How did you learn um, there that that existed? Well, I tell you what happened, Peter. I I applied for a government grant, which were going around at the time to go and study directing in Britain when I finished my university degree. And uh, it was just around the time that the Arts Council in New Zealand were getting a bit sick of New Zealanders going to do that and never coming back to New Zealand, just staying expats working in the British theatre. And so that they, it was they that said, look, we don't want to give you money to do that. We want to We've approached the, the, what was then called New Zealand Drama School uh, and asked them if they'll open a place for you to study as a director here in New Zealand. Um, and that's what they did. And that's what I did. Yeah. So um, I don't, you know, I don't even think that um, Tofikari was really on, especially on my radar. I mean, a little bit, I guess, because my parents were English. So a lot of their kind of sense of energy was was you know back home as they called it i mean it was very it was relatively early for the new zealand drama school you know and the and, the, and indeed the new zealand theater industry in a weird way you know it was obviously there but it was you know it the actual professional theater in new zealand did did begin and flourish inside my lifetime which is saying something really it's not that old you know were you able to work much in New Zealand as a director after graduation? I was extremely lucky, actually. I um I got a job very quickly as an associate director at the, at the Mercury Theatre, which now was the now defunct Mercury Theatre. Nothing to do with me. Um, and uh, it 
that was I just met uh, Jonathan Hardy at that time was visiting New Zealand and he came to the drama school actually uh, and did some classes there and we got on well and he offered me a position at Mercury so straight 21 straight out of drama school I basically got that gig and he was brilliant to me you know like he just gave me outrage you know outrageously high bar projects to do so I did those for a couple of years at the Mercury and in a way it's part of like it was the fact that I got such a strong leg up so quickly in, in New Zealand that I started looking elsewhere to for my career because I could kind of you know, you know I kind of virtually see the end of every every road in New Zealand and they were short roads you know so when I when I got the job at Whopper, I did it as much because it was something I knew nothing about, and I was going into the unknown as 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 anything else. Yeah. So yeah. So how did uh, the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts appear on your radar? Was it, were they advertising for a, a lecturer director or they were? Was it... Yeah. Um, I, I tell you, this is a really amusing thing that happened. I um, I was leaving. I was going to Britain. Um, I think my wife Carolyn saw the saw the advertisement in uh, for the for a you know lecture director at Whopper. I I was I was embarking on a trip and I I basically sent out a letter to them. I really thought I was kind of probably underqualified or whatever, but I sent a letter to Whopper saying, look. This is who I am. This is I'd like to do. It sounds like really interesting, and sent it off, and then got on a plane and went to Melbourne actually because my brother was living in Melbourne at the time, and I was going coming to Melbourne and then going to Britain. Um, and the people from Whopper arrived in New Zealand and rang and said we'd like to meet you know and so by then I was in Melbourne and they'd gone to New Zealand <laughs> and they came back to Melbourne. And we had a chat in a hotel room in Melbourne, and then I went off to Britain, and then they offered me the job while I was in Britain, and I came back and did it. So it was a kind of a very bizarre set of circumstances that led to that to that happening. Yeah. I imagine that would have been Jeff Gibbs and Lyle Jones, perhaps. It was were, Jeff yeah. Gibbs. Yes, I mean, again, you know, like I owe a lot of my career to irresponsible people. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, by which I mean just kind of, kind of larrikin, or, I hate that word larrikin, but you know, like kind of rather ebullient spirits just going, fuck it, let's give it a go. Um, mm. And really that's what Jonathan did for me at the Mercury. Like he, people would have said, what are you doing giving a, a 21, 22 year old these large main stage shows to direct before they've kind of cut their teeth on blah, blah, blah. And Jeff was the same, like there I was. I mean, when I got to Whopper, I was younger than some of the people I was teaching. Mm. But Jeff had that kind of cavalier spirit. I, and, and, you know, to an extent, the, the, I, I, I was very conscious that um, the English people who were also uh, there, like keeping Whopper, the actual teaching of Whopper afloat, afloat like Nigel Rideout and Lyle, wonderful Lyle Jones, who was Australian, but, you know, very been in Britain Big for career years in the UK. Mm. Yeah. Um, they thought I was an upstart. You know, they, they, they I, I could feel that they were 
awfully polite and sweet to me and all that. But I knew that from their point of view, Jeff had just thrown this kind of New Zealand wild card into, into, into the mids, into their mids. So, um, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. He was, he was, he was very good to me. But the opportunities that Jeff and, and Jonathan Hardy have given you were, were very much sink or swim, wasn't it? If you, if you were able to deal with that and prove yourself, then um, you obviously had the, uh, the mantle to, uh, to, to pursue your career. I think that's that's right. Though that is the point of it, isn't it? You either you, it's. I always say to people like it. That was just luck. It was really when I was employed by both those people. It's not like I'd done really in my mind done something to deserve being employed. Apart from that, I did have a self belief. You know, I did believe that I wouldn't have asked for the job, but. But the point being that so so that's incredibly lucky. So luck luck gets you certain things, but it only lasts for as long as it it, it only lasts lasts for the first um, beat, you know. And then if you don't if you can't deliver, then it goes away again. So yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So is it then that you become an associate at the Melbourne Theatre Company from Whopper? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, you know, again, breach faith. I don't know. Roger Hodgman just had heard about some of my work, I think, at Whopper. And he offered me a job. He was running the VCA at the time, and he offered me a job directing something at the VCA. But I always remember this to his incredible credit. He offered me the job of associate at the MGC before my production at the VCA had opened. So he didn't make me feel like that was the test and I was going to pass or fail it. You know, before before that actually went on, he'd already said, would you like to stay in Melbourne and, and join me at the MGC? Yeah. So uh, associate at the Melbourne Theatre Company, what are the first plays that you are directing? I did um, a series of plays in Russell Street Theatre, the now now dead Russell Street Theatre. Um, I did. Uh, they were so different, actually. I did. I remember in that first, like that first, you know, at that time, MT, MTC announced two seasons a year. They did had two subscription drives a year because they did so much work. And I did in a new Australian play called Shimada. I did Joe Orton's What the Butler Saw, and I did Sam Shepard's A Lie of the Mind as my first three plays in a row in Russell Street. And, and um, I, uh, yeah, I just, I remember opening the theatre up thinking that it was very letterboxy, that theatre, and I put a, a probably what would now be an illegal rake into the theatre because I was doing three plays basically in a row. I said, you know, I can put this rake in, it'll exist, and I'll use it for all three of those plays and uh, trying to kind of push the the audience the the actors kind of forward into the audience experience a bit in that theater i saw a lie of the mind did you wow my yeah God. yeah val layman was it wasn't she that's right yeah 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 yeah, yeah 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 oh i mean once you see your first shepherd you don't forget it i know it's amazing <laughs> it's amazing work incredible works beautiful but that russell street yeah, theater wasn't it the russell street theater was an extraordinary space a terrific space. I was sad to see it go when uh, yeah. it moved on. It was like it didn't 
it didn't have the kind of magic in terms of its configuration that somewhere like Belvoir has, you know, in terms of an audience actor relationship. But it was a particular size. And you have that kind of treasured memory of how plays, what what the experience was to go to plays there. You know, it was very, it was, it was for an end stage theatre, it was very intimate. It had that fantastic central aisle, which I always loved that central aisle because we had naked people running down the aisle during what the butler saw, which caused the audience like an immense frenzy of excitement. And, uh, and we, uh, later on, in my time at Melbourne Theatre Company, we did an adaptation of Tristram Shandy in that theatre in which the cast had a Brussels sprout fight with the audience. Like we threw Brussels sprouts between the audience and the cast. It would utterly be illegal now. I don't think yeah, ever yeah. get away with it. Someone would be struck <laughs> by a Brussels sprout and that would be the beginning of the lawsuit. <laughs> but it was such a great moment in the theatre. It was fantastic. <laughs> Under your reign as artistic director of Melbourne Theatre Company, I also saw in 1988 a production of The Importance of Being Earnest, which yeah. uh, it was just a, an extraordinary evening of, of uh, theatre, Wildean theatre. In that production, you were working with people like Gordon Shater, Frank Thring, Monica Morn, Bob Hornery, who were have been there on the ground floor of the Australian theatre yeah. industry. Yeah. What do you learn from, well, they are legendary, actors like that? Yes, that's a that's kind of a great question, Peter. I, I think um, it's quite a thrilling thing to, to know as a director that there are things that actors will know that you'll never know and, in fact, you know, you'll you have to have to kind of be patient for the event of the theatre. I've I've been so interested occasionally to see actors doing things that in the rehearsal room I'm almost gritting my teeth because they feel so um, wrong in the in the rehearsal room context to watch them blossom like something extraordinary in the in the once once you had an audience and 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 get an audience in and those those actors had unbelievable rungs on the board and knowledge and an instinct for what was especially what was funny you know like just just the sense of comedy you know bob Hornery could ring a laugh out of anything he was a remarkable actor and when i first did Ernest, it was actually all while i was still an associate director at mdc when i when those parts that gordon played were played by frank thring you know, I had this because Ruth Cracknell was playing Lady Bracknell. I just wanted this. There's those two kind of extra butlers in earnest, which, which are kind of wild card. Well, no pun intended. But you've got this little tiny ensemble of brilliant actors, and you've got these two bit roles. And um, I wanted to find a kind of a legendary figure to do those roles, um, to make them part of this whole thing. And Frank Thring did those for me. And he'd been in retirement for a long time when he did those roles. And he was, his sense of comedy, and he was a, a committed alcoholic, Frank, and, and you know, quite unreliable in many ways. But my God, the, the, that he'd forgotten more about comedy than I will ever know. He was just so, he was so brilliantly attuned to it. Um, 
so there were various a great it's a real honor to to have spent some time you know when i was running the mdc and we did the 50th anniversary year the company had been you know it was our 50th anniversary and i did a production of durham mars the visit um and zoe caldwell who'd been again right down at the beginning of the theater company came back and alex scott and they played the leads and that and as many i had as many people in it who had been you know with the theater company over its entire history including including the 70 year olds and and then you know the 50s and the 40s and the 30s as many people as i could possibly kind of put to celebrate the show and it was the same like zoe was those actors are amazing it's 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 a thrilling experience to to work with them well someone like zoe caldwell arrives with an extensive career on Broadway and three Tony Awards and, you know, and Frank Thring arrives with such a, a legendary history and all sorts of stories. Is it quite daunting that first day of rehearsal, wondering where this is all going to go and are they going to be prickly? Are they going to be easy? I suppose so. Look, first, as you well know, because you've been an actor, the first day of rehearsal is always a rather strange um nervous experience for everyone. It's first it's first day at school. It's it's quite confrontational. Um I think it's part of, you know, the director's job to try and make it as relaxed and kind of non-nervy as possible, knowing that everyone, including the director themselves, is feeling apprehensive. I, I want to say that usually by the time I you hit that first day you know the people you're working with you you know you don't you you haven't you've, you've had have had time to develop some kind of rapport and or and or experience with those very um luminary people you know like you haven't just um looked up Zoe Caldwell and showcast and sent a message <laughs> to her agent you know like you've had the meeting and thought it through and 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 whatever so you think you've got somewhat got the measure of it and uh yeah, yeah, it's, it's 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 okay, really. I think I think it's possibly reassuring. You know, like sometimes, obviously, later you hit you hit period moments where where people get anxious or unhappy or angry. But it's useful to know that there is a, that commonality between actors that even though they're wildly different, they they're experiencing the same thing really and and they have different different methods of dealing with that level of anxiety or or the weirdness of the very thing we do they've got different defenses against their you know their, their sense of vulnerability um but they're all they are united to common you know in in a, in a commonality about what they're doing you had about 11 years, I think, as uh, Artistic Director of MTC. I did. Yes. Now, And finishing up, although you had Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, to go to, was it a daunting experience wondering what is ahead, going off as a freelancer? I guess a little bit. I experienced that quite strongly in a way more strongly when I when I was artistic director for four years of State Theatre Company of South Australia in the early 90s. And when I left that job and went back into freelancing, indeed, for the seven years until I got the MDC job, 
that was really kind of an interesting scenario to go from a, a calendar that was jam-packed to a calendar that you're juggling to work out what you're going to do and and and, and a, a a potentially insecure like well obviously your life becomes more insecure um and with but with the mtc i probably did have a pretty strong sense of knowing that i had i had a career that 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 i that was not going to desert me uh, it was one of the reasons why when i took the mdc job i i contractually made sure that i could do one play out of the company the whole time i was there so that my life didn't become entirely this melbourne entity in which you're you know you're, and you're the epicenter of the melbourne theater company but no one else in the in the country or the world really knows anything about you so i did i yeah you know, I, I did make sure i kind of covered my bases a bit in that respect yeah it's much harder being it's harder being a freelancer because you get you, always, you know as anyone will tell you you get offered three jobs all at the same time and then you've got four months where there's nothing and then it's, it's never you it's it's much it's much more of a headache juggling your schedule as a freelancer than when you're at the at a company and you're going this is the one period in the year i am free to do a show if if you want me to do it this is when i can do it and it sorts everything out you know you uh through your career you have uh, directed a vast amount of plays uh coming from various the pens of various playwrights um albie coward ibsen shakespeare um, but also yeah. uh, playwrights, uh, Williamson, um, Hanny Race and uh, Joanna Murray-Smith. Yeah. Um, is it advantageous to have the playwright in the room? I mean, or is it uh, preferred if they're <laughs> they've gone to God? I Look, it's, it's a completely different gig, I think. Um, look, I like having a playwright in the room. I don't find that remotely problematic, um, although I do think for the actors, I always recommend that the playwright spend some time out of the room because for the actors, it's better to be able to say this line shit and I hate saying it, which they will incidentally say if they're doing a Shakespeare as well. You know, it's not, it, so, so you don't want them not to be able to say that to get it out of their system. And you don't want the writer to hear it in the wrong way, which is just like this is just doesn't necessarily mean that it's a badly written line. It just means that the actor can't come to terms with it and whatever. So, so for the for the actual actors, I like to tell the playwright to be out of the room for certain periods and then in the room when we've got lots of things to ask. So that's how I like it to work. And um, and you know, by and large, that has worked quite well quite well there's a probably a little bit more freedom to just kind of experiment without feeling that you're driving the playwright mad by doing by doing the, the experiments but you know when you're doing a an existing play and Shakespeare's probably a little bit different from most because with Shakespeare you're you're almost you it's very unlikely that you won't be cutting and and or manipulating it a bit and it is actually something that you know you've been given from history that now is it's a blueprint that is so well known that you can 
take you know you can use it to make your own thing out of it to a certain extent i mean i'm not i'm not someone who wants to do you know a hamlet you know i.e i'm stealing hamlet really making it my own thing but thanks for the plot and a lot of good lines shakespeare but that's about <laughs> as far as our relationship is going to go um but i you know you will be you will be making edit you'll be editing it to your own um you know your own needs and your own sense of how long you want the evening to be but, but a lot of those other playwrights a lot of the the um the sam shepherds and the and it, you know you're not doing anything with their script you've got the script one of the re reliefs about it is that you're not working this you're, you're not um making the script work it's not an exercise yours you're doing new work your rehearsal period is half about getting the performances and half about making sure that the play is coming together as a piece of theater yeah of course the um the blueprint for production is the, is the text but i think just as important are the the stage images the pictures which are created on the stage do you think about the visuals that you want, want to achieve before you go into a production yeah yeah i mean in a way it's very, like it's very, like very moving art yeah yeah i think um there are varying levels of that peter like varying degrees but one of the things i'm very conscious of is that if i start reading a play and a visual for how it feels or looks has not come into my head within the first four pages, I am unlikely to do that play. You know, I'm, I, and, and if I persevere in spite of having had no kind of imaginative inspiration from the first few pages of the text, quite often, it's not my best work. So I'm really conscious of that. And I get, I do get imagery quite strongly on a read of any, any given play. And it's not necessarily that that image is the one that absolutely, as I've seen it in my mind's eye, is the image that, that, that appears when, when the curtain goes up in the theater, you know, like you work with a designer and you've got that image in your head and the designer brings all their own ideas and thoughts and images and as in the best of collaborations you end up with something that's better than either of you could have thought of by yourselves you know so that all happens but yeah the visuals are the visuals are important to me i have to say yeah we've talked about plays a lot um but of course you've directed a vast number of musicals established musicals and and new musicals you obviously relish the form and that that goes back to i think early new zealand when you're directing productions of Oliver and Chicago and, and Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. What, what are the qualities essential for a good musical, do you think? <laughs> so, so funny. <laughs> Just like you always go, if only we knew. If only we knew, then, 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 then that'd all work. I, 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 I think I kind of, I got into musicals as much out of the sense of stagecraft as the fact that they were musicals, you know, like, I think it was the fact that I, you know, I was kind of into, I could do those big picture visions that, that you rarely are, are rarely required of a straight play that, that ended up putting me in that position. But, 
you know, what makes a, well, what makes a good musical, those rules seem to be changing all the time and they've never been changing more rapidly than they seem to be changing at the moment. Um, I think that there are a lot of kind of, there are a lot of cliches about what, what makes a musical, which no sooner have they been formed, but a musical comes along that doesn't have those cliches and is hugely successful. So as I say, it's very hard for me to define it. I've, I've always thought that, um, you know, people say, oh, it's about, it's about things operating on a level where there is no option but to sing. Um, and you kind of then you go, yes, well, yes, that may be so. But in My Fair Lady was a perfectly successful stage play without the compulsion for people to sing. So there was nothing in that story that compelled people to sing. It is that the nature of the story made for a good musical. I, I kind of I, I am inclined to think that a musical and uh, needs to have a kind of a heartbeat of a, a kind of aspirational um, heartbeat behind it that that bears fruit in a particular way. Uh, but I'm sure there are many examples of musicals where that doesn't happen. But the uh, the kind of obvious feeling for me that makes a musical a musical is that kind of journey of of aspiration and kind of some sense of blossoming and fruition and having got reached a de destination that is celebratable uh is part of it and that said you know that we're doing um tim finn and carolyn and myself are doing come rain or come shine which we developed during COVID at the mtc mid mid this year and that is one of my interests interests like weird objective interests about that is that i can't really say that that is the trajectory of that show which may mean that it is the exception that proves the rule or may mean that it's uh, doomed to fail as a musical we all have to watch the space see, see. <laughs> well the new new musicals that you uh, have been at the helm of uh, you know priscilla um, an officer and a gentleman ladies in black mirrors wedding they've all had extensive workshop process up to uh, up to uh, the production. Workshopping is obviously vital um, to the, yeah. the development of a, of a strong piece. Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I particularly, I, I think it is because, um, you know, the, the theatre per se is experiential and, and it's, you know the, the the way it works is is rarely if ever um reliably planable on paper and with a musical that is quadrupled in every respect because there are a number of different creative forces usually going into it um and music is ephemeral and and you know has effects and has has um, you know emotional effects on people and or fails to have the effect that you assume that you're almost certain it's going to have you know so because they're also very expensive to put on 
for, for the same reasons, the more that you've put them into a scenario where that experience is had, however rudimentarily, like you put them into that, that, that scenario, the more likely you are to have got it right. And of course, no matter how much you think you have, it being on a stage in a set with, a, with an audience of 800 to 1,000 people rather than an audience of 80 to 100 people sitting watching a workshop, like all those things, it will still change right up to the moment it opens fully fledged in a theatre. And more often than not, it will change when it does its second season because after watching it in the theatre for three months, you've realised that there are other things that could be better about it. It's, it's a very fluid process. Well, a musical that is tried and true is, of course, Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera. And we have known it for the past 30 years or so with that Hal Prince staging, um, which uh, many people have seen it many times, and that's, that's quite vivid in their minds. It must be a wonderful opportunity to be able to create this whole new vision for the show um, as it's presented on Sydney Harbour. Look, it obviously, it is indeed. It's a wonderful opportunity. It's, it is, I, I hasten to say, a significant challenge. Um, partly because that Hal Prince, that, you know, that magnificent production that Hal Prince did, part of the way that the organism of the production worked was by extensive use of a flying system. Um, uh, you know, cloths come and go pictorially, the sense of it being in a theatre and all those lavish painted cloths that came in and out for the opera productions and all those. That is really, and, and its ability to go, we're in this location now and then now we're just going to be in the next location was about, let's fly this cloth in and you can't see anything behind and we'll keep going. And of course, we're on the harbour, any cloth is a spinnaker, there isn't a flying system anyway, there isn't a grid. So you're trying to reinvent the show without any of those resources at your disposal. And that is, is a challenge, I have to say. But you know, it's a, uh, it's also, you know, an interesting thing to do a show that's beloved. And as you say, it, it is, in a way, seared on people's memories, but by definition, we doing a new production of it and, and we, we're so we are not going to the scenario hasn't changed the script hasn't changed but you know if people have vivid visual memories of what the original was those are not going to be there because they belong to Hal Prince and his team and and not to me and mine why do you think the show has become such a world phenomenon you know it's the longest running musical on Broadway uh, it's yeah. played all around the world. People love it. They do love it. And I think um, I think because there there are two things about it, really, I think. I think the the kind of superficial thing to say about it is that actually it makes people feel like they've seen an opera when they haven't really seen an opera. Uh, and they get a great kind of sense of wow! Now that's not a boring opera. That's 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 an exciting opera, and and they're you know they're, so so it doesn't doesn't have the kind of um, intellectual duress that that uh, maybe a real opera has for some people. You know, it's, it delivers 
lots of bang for your buck. But, you know, the second part of that statement outside, whether it's an opera or not, is stands regardless, isn't it? It's full of drama. It has some really seriously beautiful, memorable tunes in it. It's very high on romance. It's high on murder. It's high on mayhem. It's got comedy. It's got the fantastic, you know, strange love triangle. It's got a deformed person. And it's got, it's just got everything that, that you might possibly want to make an action packed night in the theater. And I, I, I can only assume that that is the thing. It's just, it delivers, <clears throat> it delivers both an emotional and a kind of a, I want to use the word thriller. You know, I, I was thinking like it's good for a piece of theater to have an element of thriller in it. No matter what element that is, it might be an emotional thriller and it might be actually a, an action packed thriller, but I think it does have those, all those ingredients. I guess you come to the show with terrific insight into the psychology of those characters because, of course, you were responsible for the success of the sequel, Love Never Dies. You you know the characters quite well. It's so interesting, Peter, because when I did Love Never Dies, of course, I did the sequel not having had a great deal of experience of its predecessor. And I was dependent, you know, I didn't know Phantom that well. I, I, I knew it as a yeah, average audience member who'd, who'd seen it, but I didn't, um, I didn't know it intimately. And I was dependent on, on many other people who knew it very well to, to give me the necessary insights that I needed to feed in that direction. Um, and now I'm kind of in the reverse position. I know what, I supposedly know what happened to the characters 10 years later. <laughs> Uh, but you can't really, I think, do Phantom of the Opera with that in mind. Uh, but I do think I have certain, um, you know, for what it's worth, there are nuances of psychology that you can retrofit back into, into Phantom of the Opera that maybe I, I wouldn't have necessarily been so alert to if I hadn't done Love Never Dies, yeah. Love Never Dies, of course, had had a, a production or, or considerable workshop with an American director in London. How did this charming Australian get the gig to uh, to really work on it and make it work uh, in Australia? I know, I know. Who knows, Peter? Who knows? I think you know they, that um, again, kind of a just circumstances coming together. I think because the first outing in London had such a tumultuous um reception you know it was very it was slammed and and you know there's a certain lobby which never leaves that show of people who think it should never be done in the first place so there's a lot of lot of crap around it um and it was due you know that production was due to come to australia as any andrew lloyd webber production had a had a rollout planned internationally and because of the way that it was received in London, like there was a decision that it shouldn't, they, that they shouldn't bring that production. And they decided, God bless them, to give it another whole new outing to see, you know, they believed in the show. So they just thought that it was, the problem was that the production hadn't, hadn't come off and they thought they'd try, have another go. And um, they came to me to do it. I think that, um, Andre Pajinski probably is 
as much responsible as anything. And he d died um, over the period of COVID very tragically and and um, and far too young. But he was an absolutely wonderful man. I had not not just because he was good to me, but because he was genuinely one of one of the good people. And I'd had a bit to do with him when I was doing Priscilla in London. And he just said to the uh, Australian wing of really useful why don't you get simon to do a new production of it so that's how it happened i went and met the lord and chatted it through and started talking about how it could be you know how i always said it had the world's most expensive workshop uh that any show could have so um I, yeah i was lucky enough to kind of be able to spring off what they learned from from that show well, you're getting the band back together from Love Never Dies. Guy Simpson is your musical director on Phantom and, and Gabriella Tislova is designing again. Um, it must be great to work with the same collaborators on uh, on, on yeah. the gigs. Yeah, it is. I do, um, uh, I do love it. They're great people. Um, Gabriella... And I have done a lot of it, well, and and Guy and I have done a lot of shows together, and we know that we get on, and uh, it's always you know, I have a, a number of that you know that said I have a number of different collaborators because that's the way the business works out, and it's it's wonderful those relationships like like all all of those things they they become easier and richer, and your shorthand becomes there, and everyone's ready you know ready to go and ready to give it their best shot. Yeah. Do you have a favourite moment in the the Phantom? score or production narrative that's a good question i do but um i do but it's very hard for me to describe to you exactly where it is it interests me because because you know this is i'm not i'm i'm but i'm getting close to answering your question when um when we did love never dies um I, I always felt that the score for Love Never Dies was incredibly consistently beautiful. Um, and I, I was a great proponent for that score. You know, like I thought it was really glorious. And in a way, um, because it doesn't have what Phantom of the Opera has, which is little pastiches of other operas in the course of doing the show. And those pastiches are incredibly clever but they they fragment the score of Phantom into a much more kind of disparate little um, a, a, a disparate whole, you know, like whereas, whereas in a way Love Never Dies seems to hang together really beautifully. But when we were when there was like some question about would it go to, would it go to Broadway and there were, and producers got involved who said I still think it needs to change. And I was in Broadway in New York having those discussions and I thought I should bloody hell, I have to go and see Phantom again while I'm here to see what, you know, see what people are talking about in terms of making these changes that make it more like Phantom 2. And um, I went to see Phantom and I sat there in Phantom thinking, oh, fuck, you know, like I've always thought that the score of Love Never Dies was so, so wonderful, but there are, there is no doubt about the fact that there are three songs in Phantom of the Opera that knock everything into a cocked hat. You know, they're just magnificent, unforgettable, superb, beautiful pieces of music. And and uh, and it's just undeniable. And they're incredible earworms, like you cannot get them out of mm. your head. 
Mm. Um, but actually, my favourite moments in the show are really uh, psych psychological ones, strongly dramatic ones. You know, where 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 it's feels more like a scene has been very successfully set to music rather than those standalone you know, superb, beautiful numbers, completely understandable. You know, it's just a different thing. For a drama director, you know, those are the exciting bits, psychologically dense pieces, you know, really quite complex music that's great. And the other thing about fandom is it has some really fantastic, witty lyrics in it that kind of get hidden a bit inside some complex musical sextets and things, but they're really fun. They're great. They're a great joy. I've been... been very much enjoying the libretto. Well, uh, all the best, Simon. It's uh, it's quite a feat ahead of you to uh, <laughs> yeah. create this production for Opera Australia. It's playing uh, on Sydney Harbour from March 25th to the 24th of April. And North by Northwest is at the Lyric Theatre from March 9th. So uh, looking forward to seeing them both. And uh, though the animals of New Zealand might be all the poorer because you didn't uh, <laughs> go down the path of being a vet, we are so, so grateful that you made it to Australia and have presented us with the delights of of theatre uh, that we have experienced uh, since uh, your arrival in what 1984 I think it was I can you believe it I know I know decrepit yeah. uh, but thank you Peter it's been lovely to talk to you thank you yeah I've loved talking to you too thanks Simon cheers we wish Simon and his team at Opera Australia an enormous chookers for the new production of The Phantom of the Opera one of the longest running and most successful musicals of all time, the trio playing the iconic leads will be Melbourne-born Joshua Robson as The Phantom, Brisbane performer Georgina Hobson as Christine, and acclaimed West End and Broadway musical theatre performer Callum Francis as Raoul. And thrilled to see that the wonderful Marie Johnson, currently playing the role of Madame Giry on Broadway, will return home to reprise the role. Many of you would know that Marie was one of the Christines in the original Australian production of The Phantom of the Opera. Welcome home, Marie. There's a Stages episode in the archive featuring Marie Johnson, so check it out. The Phantom of the Opera on Sydney Harbour plays March 25th to April 24th. Further information can be found at www.opera.org.au. And thanks once again to my guest in this episode, the brilliant stage director, Simon Phillips. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time.